Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. Today, my guest is Molly Goddard, co-founder of Desmond and Dempsey. As I say later in the episode, there's no such thing as overnight success. Molly shows the links you can go to reach your customers, and also she shows how she's reinventing laziness. We were like... We've launched. Why aren't people buying these? Like, what is going on? I don't get to the office before 10 most mornings, which in entrepreneur world is pretty frowned upon. Chris doesn't really phase me. So welcome, Molly. Hi, thank you. Yeah, so nice to have you. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice to be here. Thank you. I think I read somewhere um, that you studied graphic design. You dropped out of university and then you're traveling around. Can you tell me more about your background and your career history before founding DND? Yeah, so I dropped out of uni twice. <laughs> I started in my business and took a little break from that and then... I came back, I went and met girlfriends who were all doing a gap year and we travelled around Europe at 17. I do not know what my parents let me do, like coming over here for three months at 17. And then I went back and went to study again and didn't feel like it was right. So I went and did a graphic design course. Completely different. Yeah, but dropped out of that as well and was like, that's not right. And went back and did... Uh, communications at university for about three months and then went over in Australia your big summer break is from October through till February and I went on my summer break to Canada to ski and mum and dad came over to visit and I just fell in love with Canada and I remember like we were meant to be leaving in like four days time. I went to their hotel and was like, I'm not going to come home with you. And they were just like, what? What was so great about Canada and how did you stay? Well, we were doing a ski season. So I was with a girlfriend and actually two of the boys, like boys that were friends in our group. And we just all had like pub jobs and had this great time of like we'd ski every day, we'd work in the pubs at night and I met Joel, um, my husband there, and I was 19 and he had finished university and he was working in a bar. So he was doing a ski ski season there. He was doing a ski season there. I was doing a ski season there. That's so fun. Yeah. and we just romantic. Well, I don't know if it was romantic. (laughs) So then I finally went back after six months and studied business and communications. My favorite and what I lent towards was the political crisis management side. Oh, wow. But um, it was a combination of everything you kind of did previously, right? Business, communication, except for the graphics side. Yeah, which is funny because I probably, most of my job now, you would think graphic design would mm. come in the handy, but I've learned graphic designers are so patient and so meticulous. Yeah, I agree. And you have to be so detail-oriented. Oh, my gosh. And Alignment, font size, everything. Everything. And I have no interest in the detail whatsoever. <laughs> so it's been a funny old career path. And then I was 21 when I moved to London by the time I finished university. Yeah. and So blah, you blah, blah. finished that course, finally. I finished that course, finally. Um, and... 
I did in that course, I went and did a study abroad a year after Canada and lived in Madrid. And Joel happened to be working for a company that had an office in Madrid. So he would come out and we just had the best like year. Were you dating at that point since Canada? Well, yeah. yeah. Wow. So you were doing long distance for a while. Yeah, for like three years. But then one of the years was from Madrid. He was essentially like my second boyfriend and yeah we just had the best year in Madrid and loved it. Was it a shock living together after doing long distance for three years? So in Madrid I lived with friends that I studied with and then when I finally moved here it was only meant to be for two years and I moved in with Joel for the first three months and then I moved in with girlfriends but I just had to wait for them to get here and it was the biggest shock of my life. Joel's like a pretty blokey bloke for a guy that runs a pajama company and his friends are all like pretty blokey blokes. I mean, that's one of the reasons why D&D started was because I would come down in these like very girly, frilly pajamas, like not sexy, like cutesy pajamas that in Australia would be so normal how little clothing it was because it's so hot. But here it was like not a lot of clothing. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, ah, yeah, uh, uh, well, like if you feel confident, you go ahead and wear that. But like I'm not sure you should wear that in front of my friends. And so I'd wear his shirts all the time. So, so that's the inspiration behind Desmond and Dempsey. That's how we started it, yeah. yeah. And what were you doing be- like in between when you moved to London before founding Desmond and Dempsey? And then like we'll go into the inspiration. In yeah. So again, it was meant to be for two years. And I just, I graduated on the like Thursday and moved on the Friday. And Joel at the time was working for a tech company. And one of his clients or some connection through his work was a web development agency. It was really easy. I got a job with them and they were like building websites, which again, when you're not a detailed person, hilarious that I was an account manager for these website builds. What was even more hilarious was it was my, all my clients were Molson Coors, which are all the big beer, like Carling, Coors Light. So I'd spend my days like going to the football and like just, I, it was great. I did that for about a year and then Joel was meant to, to move with his work to South Africa and we were so close. I was like, yeah, I'll go to South Africa for a bit. So that was in the mix and in between that I was like, okay, I better get a job before I go of something I love. I've got six months and Korea Magazine had just launched and I picked one up in a coffee shop and hounded the founders of it until they just gave me a job. And even now if you asked Jeff or Soha what I did for them, they'd be like, we don't know. Like, <laughs> but I kind of did bits and bobs of everything because it was only for this six months before we were moving. And then during that, we started D&D because it was three days a week. So D&D, we had neither of us had any experience in fashion. Weren't really interested in the fashion industry literally went into Selfridges and Joel was like I want to buy you some pajamas because you're ruining all of my shirts and we went into Selfridges and there was gorgeous 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 Olivia Von Hall mm. 600 pounds silk that you couldn't dry clean and then there was the white company but there was nothing in between and at the time when we walked away we we're like that's odd and Joel's always been entrepreneurial like always wanted to do his own thing and he kind of worked in startup and 
environments working in tech, yeah. isn't he? We're like, oh, what, why can't, how hard can it be to make a pair of pajamas? Like, why isn't anyone doing this? And then Joel got his geek on and was like, the sleep aid industry is taking off. This like coffee culture industry is taking off. Like, why isn't anyone doing this? And so we were like, oh, well, can't be that hard. We're just going to do it. And I moved in with go- these girlfriends above a pub, the Charles Dickens pub, and my brother-in-law, Christian, had got poached from two of the big sports companies in Germany. So he had three months garden leave and he's a beautiful artist. And I was like, can you just paint some prints and we're just gonna we're just gonna make this thing. And we launched like a blog essentially about Sunday mornings. Um, thinking that would be like a month and then we'd have these pajamas ready to launch. <laughs> and it took us like a year to make the first set of samples. And all the while, like, you know, I was at this web job, which wasn't very creative and like we'd just like plug away at it, but all write about Sundays and kind of document the journey of like making our first set of pajamas. So we wanted to launch with a bit of a following. It took us a year to make our first set of samples and then we launched them and and by that time you had um significant number of followers no significant (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) like enough of a following that on our first day we sold like two sets and you you know you (laughs) I love that I love the honesty (laughs) oh we were like we've launched why aren't people buying these like what is going on exactly why aren't people just finding us what we like we're never going wholesale like no d to c launched didn't sold like yeah like i said two maybe and how many units did you produce at that point we made a hundred sets on credit cards of like tooth and nail credit cards yeah, hundreds sets of how many um designs or just one design in total a hundred yeah, sets of pajamas okay. so there was one signature set which was essentially like joel's shirt made a little bit more feminine and with a pair of shorts uh, it's still there called our signature set and we made it for like 150 pounds in london and sold it for 100 pounds <laughs> but we didn't know anything about manufacturing mm. so it was really important to me that I could go up to the factories and learn like why is a cuff five pounds to make with a button versus without a button it being like two pounds. Yeah. Did you treat that as learning process and you knew that from the get-go? Yeah. I mean it was so serendipitous but also so much like scrappy just getting these hundred sets made and our theory was like if we can make a hundred sets and sell a hundred sets, then there's a business for it. And we know we can bring the margins down later. And you can always work backwards. Exactly. But like, let's prove the concept that there is this like middle market pajama that people want. That's a very tech way of um, doing things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) So then we launched and we're like, oh my God, why aren't people buying them? And so I was like, okay, what can we do for free that can get the voice out there where people are already wanting fashion and reading about this. And so I would get out every magazine and read it cover to cover and note down what the journalist in particular was saying about a particular thing or like really engage with before Instagram, like they're writing and would email them being like, 
I love this piece and I loved the piece in the issue before. Like, would you mind? You were stalking these journalists. I'm stalking them. and I love that. But like old school with like sticker notes on pieces of paper and being like, okay, Julia <laughs> well, Hobbs. Well, it was 2014, is, right? 2014. I still remember Julia Hobbs. I could tell you like her feature articles because I studied them. I would always go more for like the assistants because... I thought I had a better chance getting it with them. <laughs> and she met me. So it worked. Yeah. Yeah, she responded to you. Yeah, and she wrote a piece of like the best pajamas X and we were like the front picture. Wow, that's amazing. Incredible. Yeah. What was the effect of that? Fortnum Mason and Bergdorf Goodman emailed our hello inbox and were like, can we stock these? Wow. Yeah. Power of PR. Power of PR. And how did you know to do that? Like go go stock all the journalists and email them? I don't think I like I was just, it just an instinct. Yeah. I've always loved magazines. I've always loved like I still to this day like am so bad at social because I love magazines. The tactility, everything about them. So I knew that I was being influenced by what was in them. And I was working for a magazine at the time. Mm. Yeah, of course. So you knew the mindset of people behind the magazine. I think so. Yeah. I had some, I mean, Courier Paper was a business paper about startups. So it was very different. But I was kind of in this world of like people just doing things and trying yes. things and in that mindset. Yeah. So the Vogue article really got you started. And tell, tell me more about the evolution of the brand since then. So the Vogue piece got us started. And then I will always credit Sarah Burton her name is and she was the Fortnum and Mason buyer and I met her and like had my little samples there and she said to me okay like what's your RRP and I remember being like RRP like the price yeah she was like what are your wholesale margins and I was like you know what I have a very similar experience Do because you? it was um Bentel so that's Fennec um in yeah. in Kingston the buyer emailed me that was the first buyer contact I ever had yeah and she wanted to meet me and I was so excited so like I went all the way down to Kingston from North London at yeah. that time and she was asking me about margins and I was like what is that yeah yeah literally. <laughs> like what margin yeah gross margin yeah <laughs> and Sarah was like can you send me the line sheets and I I remember googling like what is a line sheet how, yeah. what, how do you do that so, I actually asked the buyer what like what is a line sheet well, and then like she told me she was so kind same with Sarah and you can't google what a line sheet is like you it doesn't make sense so I replied being like I met her and was like Sarah what do you want me to do with this and she was like okay and showed me what a good line sheet looked like and just was amazing and we essentially knew right then and there that like how the business was set up right now like there was no margins we were making a loss from the beginning so we just slowly were like okay we're still gonna do Fortnum's but we're gonna do it as like a marketing exercise and we very quickly realized to then like once you have a PO you can go to a bank and be like hey I've got this order can you help me make these pajamas and so we started focusing a little bit more on wholesale long story short we were like okay let's do wholesale I was 21 Joel was 24 and we were getting all these orders but because of the lead times and all the other things we just couldn't make the pajamas and banks even though we thought like hey we've got people oats can we order they were still like no like what get it go away so we had to raise some money to make the products oh wow 
So um, you have to do that very quickly. Because the quickly. virus won't be waiting for ages. No. Right? One of the lead investors, her name was Angelica. And I think how ballsy of this woman to give a 21-year-old and a 24-year-old who'd done long distance for two years, been in the same country for six months, this chance of like making this business. And so she led the round for us. And I think we raised 150000 and we made a few seasons of pajamas. Was that just enough to produce or did you have some money to do marketing at that point? Just produce. And I could go full time and we didn't move to South Africa. Joel has this godfather figure who's actually South African and he said, called Joel up and was like, he was investing in the company that Joel was working for at the time. And he said, Joel, I know that career's great, but Molly's going to hate it and you two won't last here. So, like, make your call. That's such great advice. I know. I love Anton, his name is. And he, it was so great of him. And I was so ready to go. I was like, no, it'll be great. I can do d on the side. Because yeah, you've can... been quite spontaneous your yeah. whole life, right? So it didn't bother me at all. And we raised the money. I did it full time. We could pay for the pyjamas. And we ordered like things like boxes for the packaging that, you know, like all these yeah. things. Which And now- at this point, did you stock everything in your apartment? Yeah. And we'd moved in together by this point, I think. Or no, I hadn't. I hadn't even moved in with him. So whose flat were, were all of the Joel's and Josh. Poor Josh, like, was stacked yeah, he's with saint. women's pajamas. <laughs> yeah, and I'd, like, go and, like, pack them up and write little notes. And then what really got D&D moving, I think, was old school word of mouth. And I, after every single order, would email the customer about two weeks later and just say, hi, my name's Molly. I'm one of the founders how did you find this? But not like a generic, like... You actually, like, wrote the email. It wasn't through an automated system. No. Every single order. Every order. And I got lucky in that one of the orders was from... Now she is the founder of Collagerie, Serena Wood. And I emailed her and said, hi, Molly. I saw you ordered two sets. I wanted to make sure that the size was right. I also noticed that they were the same set. Like, did you need to return one? Or like, can I help you in any way? And she replied this amazing message being like, hey, no, I bought them for my sister and I wish I had bought two more. I'm on my way to Necker Island. Is there any way you can help me out? I need three more sets as Christmas gifts or something along those That's lines. That's amazing. And I got on the tube and delivered them to <laughs> the plane, essentially. Like the timing was just funny. And then again, I emailed back being like, hey, I just wanted to make sure like all the sizes fit. And she replied like, hey, we love them. Would you want to come and do a pop-up in Vogue House? And I had one of those like terribly embarrassing devil wears prada moments of like we're in doing the pop-up feeling all special and alexandra schumann came in and was like okay i'll have that and that's and that's set for presents and i was like okay and what's your name and how do i spell schumann and like <laughs> i now look back i'm like oh my god kill me now <laughs> but we then like it I think everyone thinks like overnight you sell all these products, but it was like a slow thing. And yeah, I love that story. There's no such thing as overnight success. No. And we've never done social media 
influences like that. We've never tackled that. And I think it's because I loved old school magazines and I loved like word of mouth connection. So the last thing I'd put in every email was if there's any way you could pretty please recommend us to a friend, we're really trying to grow the business. I've set you up with a little code. Yeah. And if you could just pass on the word and we got like, now there's mentioned me, there's all these tech things to do it, but I was doing it manually. Well, you have to, you have to do what you have to do. Yeah. And so we just asked people like, Hey, could you tell your friend, could you recommend? And then things have grown. Probably really endearing, right? Because you get like people get bombarded by automated emails, and this is so personal. Yeah, and it's really for us being such a signature or grounding to our tone of voice. You know, we're getting into bed with people. We're asking them to choose us to go to bed with them. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Yeah, quite literally. And we're also asking busy people to carve out a little space for us. And so I think then in our tone of voice and how we treat people, there needs to be a respect and a real intimacy in that. And I think I've learned that from like writing out the emails of like, hey, can you tell your friend? And it's hard. It's so hard. Like we're hiring someone on their CV. I don't care about their university. If they don't have sales experience on shop floors and they're applying for a sales job, I'm like, huh? No, like you can't sell to a customer and it's hard to ask people to buy you and recommend you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such an essential skill to have, right, especially as a growing business. Yeah, and to do it in person, I think, or do it one-to-one is much Mm. harder than like going and doing it more public. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And at this point, did direct-to-consumer take over wholesale? Yeah, D2C was always a bit bigger. I mean, it was always 80%. The thing with sleepwear category is it's not like a shiny, lovely category. It's like up on the sixth floor, the open device are only so big. Until COVID. Until COVID. And also I give a lot of credit to skims for us because skims are put in our, on our floor. So finally there's like someone with huge budgets making a bit more space on the big department yeah. store's floor. How, how did COVID really change you? Because that's when I started seeing Desmond and Dempsey all over the place. And obviously yeah. like the pajama and loungewear was huge because people weren't going out. Yeah. People just wanted pajamas and they yeah. had spare cash. So it was like all the things for us lined up and we had lots of time. So it didn't matter that we were a team of six because we could all do it. Yeah. And was Joel working on this full time? Yes. Time? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Two things really surprised us about oh, Obviously it was a great success in that we sold a lot of pajamas but the best thing we did was all of our wholesalers cancelled their orders and at the beginning of COVID and some did it very gracefully and some not so much. That must have been devastating because you wouldn't have known that like there was going to be this spike. Yeah and some of them did it in a way that you were like well done like Mm. okay and some it wasn't done as gracefully and at that point pre-COVID there was and a couple of years before um, COVID there was that real like unicorn um, business like don't worry about profitability just go 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 customer acquisition and we'd made the decision that we were going to focus on profitability over 
growth and build it a little bit more slowly but in a way that felt sustainable to us. So we'd set ourselves up for COVID that we were profitable. We had cash. We did it and we worked really, really, really hard on building relationships with our factories. So we didn't want to pass on the cancel orders to them. Our head of product, I don't want to mention her name because if anyone poached her, I'd die. (laughs) No, she's like one of our founders. She's so great. But she... Worked really closely with our factories to phase out mm. how we received that stock. And so it could work financially yeah, for that's everyone. That's really clever. It's really clever, really good move. And we just took a risk and we're like, okay, let's just take it, take the stock, keep buying it, keep the f- what factories can stay open, keep that happening. Also, everyone stopped advertising. And this was before Meta changed their whatever it is they change. So everyone stopped advertising and our ads like started returning really quickly. It was a gold mine during that time. Yeah, we had the stock and we could like advertise for really like very cost effectively. So we just turned it up quite quickly. How did you know to take the risk at that point though? Because everyone was scared, right? Yeah, I've got a terrible risk threshold. Risk doesn't really phase me at all. Joel is way more calculated, but also we just didn't have a choice. Like what else could we do? And the timing of it was we just got back from India and we were partnering with this amazing group and we were meant to fly out and do this like worldwide collaboration. Like it was turned off and we were just about to launch our H&M D&D fashion collab so we were like we're gonna have all these eyes on us and we were meant to be in like storefront and we were so heartbroken but again like what could you do and sometimes in times of crisis you have the best opportunity yeah so that all happened it was really great for business our team turned around and said to Joel and I hey you guys are the bottlenecks you need to figure out your roles and there needs to be some like divide and conquer stuff going on here. How was it done at this point? Were you just like all over everything? Yeah. So it was confusing everyone. They're like, hey, like (laughs) you guys are so confusing. Yeah, pretty much. And when you meet Jolly, like we're the opposite in so, if you, everything about us is opposite and he's, you know, really stoic and like really level and like, doesn't rush decisions and like he's like this and I'm like (laughs) and what we've learned since is actually like that's why we work so well is that we are a really good balance but at the time it was we didn't know that that was one of the benefits and so the team were kind of like guys you need to like Mm. sort this out yeah was was it painful to hear that feedback or you kind of knew deep inside that that's what you needed to do? Probably. My parents have like instilled in us like pretty thick skin <laughs> and I've got pretty thick skin. And I, I think also something that Joel and I are really good at is we're really good at conflict. Like we can argue about something quite passionately and go home holding hands or like. That's great. Yeah. And I would way rather have a disagreement with not even a disagreement, but like a constructive difference of opinions and move on. And like neither Joel and I are real sulkers. So we get told something, we'll either be like, what? Or 
And then, to be honest, like, I probably forget about it the next day. <laughs> so That's quite handy. Yeah, it's really handy. How did you divide the roles then? We'd had a lot of men try to mentor us in the past of like wanting to kind of come in and be the this and be the that. And we were this young couple and they could help us. So mentors are ex-entrepreneurs or they're a professional like Bit um, of both. Yeah. So we were introduced to Meg and Meg is this like very warm tough as nail like ran big companies sold big companies but you know will talk to me about what the astrologer says and just this perfect balance she's just gorgeous and she came to our flat once we were allowed and would just talk to Joel and I and really just helped us identify what the strengths were and more than anything We've never really fully separated our roles, but we've put processes, a few processes in place to let the team make more decisions. And how many people did you have in the team at this point? It was about seven. Charlotte, who's our head of ops, came in and she was like, okay, guys, like you two can't be doing customer service when someone takes a day of sick. And I get in do customer service and, you know, like poor Fred his wife is, you know, having a hard time with the baby. So I'd give the pajama, you know, like she's like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And like (laughs) she put in Zendesk. But did you secretly enjoy going into customer service? Love. Would still, like when we have a shop, if if I swear Joel won't ever say yes to a shop because he's like, she, he wouldn't get me out of there. I love it. I love everything about shop. You get so much feedback, right? Yeah. But I would give away like a lot of free pajamas (laughs) to people willing to pay for them Um, so yeah I was banned from customer service yeah so what keeps you awake at night oh gosh the things that would keep me up at night would be someone leaving D&D and what have we done wrong and and actually like people's lives change people have different ideas you know like want different things and all we can actually hope for now is that D&D was the best place anyone ever worked. And that was a huge, like, once I got that, I was yeah, like... it's so hard as a founder not to take things personally, personally, isn't it, right? It's like, do you, like, hate me if yeah, I leave? Yeah, <laughs> Like, what have I done? I just thought, Let me make you a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some free pyjamas yeah, here. <laughs> yeah. Go and get it. No, that I find keeps yeah. me up at night a lot. Yeah. But to be honest, like... Again, I'm a really good sleeper and Joel is up all night, like churning everything over, thinking through every single decision, whereas I make a decision and I either do it or I forget about it and I (laughs) carry on. That's great. Yeah, it is quite like handy, I guess. What's next for you and Desmond and Dempsey? You're obviously heavily pregnant right now. So by the time this podcast goes out, like your number two might be out. We don't know whether it's a boy or a girl yet. Yeah, they'll they'll hopefully, well, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but hopefully they stay put until their due date. I think we're going into our 10th year of D&D and I kind of fallen back in love with the company and the brand. When did that happen? How did that happen? Well, I don't think you meant to say as a founder you didn't 
love the I mean, but, but there are slumps, right? There are moments of slump when you have so many problems that yeah. you need to resolve. Yeah. yeah, I totally get it. Everyone has it. Yeah. It doesn't mean you don't love it. It just means you're tired and burnt out. Yeah. And I think last year I was probably pretty tired yeah. and burnt out. And it just felt like we were firefighting mm. over and over again. And we didn't want to talk about 10 years. We didn't, we turned 10 in September. And I was like, we haven't done enough. No, 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 no. And then honestly, like overnight, well, it wasn't overnight. I'm sure like things started to fall into place, but we launched the new branding, which we'd been working on for honestly three years. And it was the first ever like official branding we'd ever done. Congratulations. Thank you. And like that feels like the team can really take ownership of it and it doesn't need us as much involved. So like I'm like back in love with D&D and now. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Everyone's like, what are you doing for your maternity leave? I'm like, I don't know because I don't really want to yeah. go off yet. But with Bobby Maud, our daughter, we just took her everywhere with us for the first six months. So I'm hoping I've got six months of like I can just do bits with them. She says so naively to having never having two and not knowing what that's going to be like. (laughs) But for the brand, what's next is like really focusing on going back to our roots in a way you know when COVID hit everyone reassessed what they were about and you know like then after the crisis you're like how do I keep that and rah, 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 rah. and what we've decided is we're going back to like why we founded it and why we founded it was always and has always been to carve out a moment in time for someone to just enjoy the doing nothing. So we talk about it and have always framed it in this Sunday morning um, aspect because it was for Joel and I. We've given it a name this year so it's all about decorating the downtime and like I'm on this personal mission to reframe laziness. Oh, I love that. Yeah, don't you think yeah, that? Yeah, I think like in Italian there's a phrase, the is art of doing nothing. I don't know what it is in Italian but there is a phrase. For there sure. definitely yeah. is. Every single self-help book you read is too much is the enemy of momentum like fundamentally across every wisdom, every intellectually and philosophically advanced person has come up with like you need to sit still to move forward. But nowadays and in this world of, you know, like we can't even just go out for breakfast. We've got to create content. We can't go for a run. We have to be a marathon runner. We can't be a vegetarian. We have to be vegan. You know, like it's... We're a generation of overachievers. And I don't know about you, but like life and work always kind of like intertwine. Yeah, I think it's inevitable for an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Like your your job like is your life and your life is your job. Yeah. And it's not really a job, it's a lifestyle. Yes. For us right now, we're in this really interesting bit of we work and our team work really hard, but we work really hard to tell people to stop doing, to stop working hard. So it's this yin and this yang. And I feel like what I'm most excited by is how do we, I'm like a living example of like, how do I actually make time to do nothing and it is the hardest experiment (laughs) I've ever done and I'm naturally like a busy but I love that that being the ethos and you have to like role model that yeah as a brand founder yeah and it's really really hard 
to then be like, you know, if a deadline's not met and you want someone to go home on time, but you're also like, hey, this is a really big opportunity. Like, can mm. we just stay and finish this? Yeah. And it's this constant pull and pull. And I, I think like within the brand, we have this voice now to start inviting customers to think about laziness in a different way. You had investors like yeah. first round and second round. Are there expectations of an exit? Are you planning for it? We were meant to exit like five times, five years ago. <laughs> so strategically where the business is going is the US and where it's our fastest growing market. It's the biggest opportunity for us. And we've got a quite a clear cut strategy for two years. Is that mainly through wholesale or direct consumer, like online? Both yeah. and opening up like more channels. So we've never done dropship and in the US we're seeing the most growth through dropship mm. it's opening up our distribution channels over yeah. all the platforms in the US as quickly but cost efficiently as we can and we've got quite a clear two-year strategy on focus on the US which is really hard because I really wanted to do retail I'm a very strong proponent of retail by the way physical retail it just changes everything yeah and I think Joel is too and so is our champ like everyone's on it but the best advice and again like this whole fundamental thing of reframing mm. laziness is can't do everything at once so we can't do retail have a baby and do the US right now. <laughs> and I really want to learn how to do retail. And we had to pick one, the US or retail. Mm. And so we've picked the US and I think retail will still happen. Yeah. But it's just when it happens. Mm. And after those two years, just having a chance to like relook at everything, but no exit right now. <laughs> yeah. What's the secret to working with your partner? I don't think everyone should do it is the truth. Who should do it and who shouldn't do it? I think when you should do it is when you hold the same values and come from the same place of decision-making, but also you have the same approach to work and work ethic and you are both in the same position of your lives. So part of discussions where it's not working is when your priorities in life are a bit different. So I think if Joel and I went into business now together for the first time, it probably wouldn't work because we have a family and we have a home and we both can't do D&D &D 24 hours a day like we did 10 years ago. And your mission being lazy and taking a step back, I, I love that. How do you do that in practice? Terribly, to be totally honest. Do you have rituals or like um, any like routines that you follow? Yeah, I really don't make many plans on the weekends um, to just recover and rest and be with each other. Yeah, and you've got a toddler to look after. Yeah. Soon two. Yeah. Under two. Yeah. I don't get to the office before 10 most mornings, which in entrepreneur world is pretty frowned upon, I think, of like 5 a.m. clubs, emails before. My inbox is constantly overflowing. I do not read my emails. I'm definitely not in the 5 a.m. club camp. Yeah. And believe it or not, I actually get up at 5 a.m., but I get up to go and sit still and have a coffee and that's great. I'll journal or I'll do bits of painting that I love. And then if I'm tired, once Bobby leaves for nursery, I'll go and lay down again and have a little nap and then get ready for work. You know, how you show up 
up to that day and to all the problems you've got to approach. Like I show up tired and cranky. Absolutely. I don't stress about my inbox is one thing. I don't get to work till 10. I leave the office by latest as much as I can, five, if not four. I'd love to know how you do it. And I want to figure out how to do it. <laughs> I don't think there is a formula. I no. mean, like we can chat about it offline, but like there, there, there is no formula. I, I have like loads of help, like, to be very honest with you. Yeah. Not everyone has the resources to. So I've got a nanny who lives in yes. and like my mother-in-law lives two hours away. So she always comes and helps. And That's nice. And I guess like having a um, support of partner yes. is really important right yeah and I think like this thing of laziness is it doesn't have to be slobby like we have this dinner on a Tuesday night where I've got the best mother-in-law in the entire world and she comes up on a Tuesday Joel's one of four it's an open invite the house is always like not perfect it's got stuff everywhere but Wally comes in cooks dinner helps herself like does everything and we get to come home to this family oh that's so nice it's a perfect mess yeah it's like loud and it's bustling and there's usually like people everywhere but it's this moment of like sitting down at the dinner table midweek and having a meal together is so special and like we wouldn't put anything else above that what's one advice you'd give an early stage founder don't underestimate really good customer service I think it's really important. Customer services is everything. Yeah, like we forget that there are people giving us money that they've had to work really hard for and everything you're doing is about them but it's often like treated as like the last thing on the to-do list. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, no, Molly. That thank was you so, so much. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew, and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week. <laughs>